third and final week of golf. How many of you feel like your golf game has gotten better as well as your relationship with God? Uh, It has been awesome having Kip with us. Today we are finishing strong the very last week of golf talking about putting. How many of you drive for show, you putt for dough? They say in the golf world. I'll let Kip explain that because I'm still trying to figure that one out. Kip Peterval is with us today. Welcome him with me. Thank you. Well, we're talk- talking about putting, and uh, putting is kind of like the finale of every hole you play, and you've got to play 18 holes a day. You've got 18 finals, and uh, it is basically the make or break of each hole, and the best players have always been the best putters. Um, it's a very valuable part of the game, and uh, as Harvey Pennick said, a good putter is a match for anyone. Meaning you can hit the ball kind of all over the park, but if you can putt, you can make up for a lot of mistakes. So when we're talking about putting, there's some fundamentals that we should try to adhere to or some things we should try to adhere to. Number one is, what do we need to work on, just like in anything else in life? There's three things you can do in putting. You have to work on your touch or your ability to control the distance that you hit the ball. You have to be able to read a green. In other words, you have to be able to see which way the ball is going to break. Or you have to be able to hit the ball where you aim it. So when we have lessons, we, I'll ask people, say, what is your problem with putting? And I'll name those three as to which you need to work on. They said, I don't know. Well, that's in trouble because they have to know where their weakness is. I would venture to say that most amateurs' weakness is in the touch area. Um, so most of you go out to practice putting. You spend way more of your time putting from 10 feet and in and not enough time putting from 10 feet and out. Two of the greatest putters in the history of golf, Ben Crenshaw and Lauren Roberts, both said they spend over 60% of their time putting putts outside of 15 feet, trying to learn touch. So I was talking to, I was thinking of a story uh, revolving around when I was a assist, uh, excuse me, head professional back in Chicago, and there was a lady that I was giving a lesson in uh, sand traps. This has nothing to do with touch, but uh, she was uh, very frustrated with sand, to say the least. And she was taking the lesson, and she would not hit the sand wedge into the sand. No matter what I told her, she wouldn't put the club in the sand. And in the sand, you have to hit the sand because that takes the ball out. And I finally said, Mrs. Van Ness, why won't you hit the sand? She said, well, I just had my hair done. I didn't want to get sand in my hair. (laughs) Well, the the next, next week or so... We have a little fun tournament on Friday afternoons for couples uh, in the summertime back in Chicago. And this tournament day was you get one free throw per hole. So uh, if you wanted to, you could take the one free throw on a two-foot putt, lean over it, and drop it in the hole. You could do whatever you want. So on the second hole, I happened to be out kind of watching what people were doing. And Mrs. Van Ness hit it up right next to the green. And there was a little wedge of sand in her way. Knowing her fear of sand, she decided that this would be a good time to do what? Throw it. So she steps up, she goes, and throws it right into the sand trap. Okay, so she hadn't been practicing her throwing. Okay, she didn't have touch to throw it. So if we're going to try to putt, we need to really work on our touch. And there's different ways that you'll see your tour players work on touch. One of the ways I like to do with people is to test their touch, is have them take three balls and try to hit them roughly 20 feet and not look after the first one and then just rake a ball in hit another one, rake a ball in, hit another one, and see how close they come together. Uh, Paul Runyon, who was my mentor when I was growing up and won the PGA Championship a couple times, was nicknamed Little Poison because of his prowess around the greens. He said, it takes luck to make a 20-foot putt. However, it takes tremendous skill to stop every putt within a foot. So the more you get skillful, 
the more you get what? Lucky, okay? So I've done this drill with people, and they do the first, they do the three putts, and they've been as much as 15 feet apart, okay? Now, that's extreme, but I have seen it on several different occasions. So I try to have them do three putts and try to get it within 15 feet, 15 inches, excuse me. Um, so that's one way you can work on your touch, working on reading the greens. Most people look at a green and they go, and so you have to use a little imagination. So I try to tell them that every green that's built has to have a way for water to get off of it. Water cannot pool on a green if you have excessive rain or irrigation problem, because if the water pools, the green dies. So every green has got to have some place for the water to go. So my I say, take your imagination and say, I'm going to dump a dump truck of water on this green. Where's it going to go? And now they start thinking about it. Well, it's got to go somewhere. And they start seeing that there's runoffs here, there's runoffs there. And they start getting an idea for slope. That's one way you can learn to read greens. Also get away from the green from a distance. Get 50 or 100 yards away and start looking because you can see the slope sometimes from a greater distance. The old you know, saying is you can't see the forest through the trees. Get away and you'll sometimes see it. And uh, learning the, the idea to read the green, the other thing you can do is learn to use your feet. Uh, feet can tell you a lot. It's a pretty good sense, and some of the best putters, again, have used their feet as a device to measure the slope as they're walking uphill, downhill, or side hill. And last, on hitting a putt on a line, you want to try to just use a simple device that you can get at Home Depot, a chalk line, and see how well you are adept at rolling a ball on a, on a line where you aim the putter. Sounds simple, but it's one of the most popular tools used on the tour by your players because they know they have to be able to hit the ball where they aim it. Doesn't do you any good if you can't hit it where you aim it. So those are some of the tools they use for putting. Putting is obviously a big mental part of the game. You have to be able to conclude the hole. And as Aaron's going to be talking about, you have to finish strong. And one of the major problems most people, when they putt, they want to finish strong. And they start thinking about the results instead of the process. Okay, so when you start thinking about the results, you get ahead of yourself. So much wanting what? a good finish that you get ahead and then people will start to move anticipating. And that's one of the areas you'll see even the best players in the world, they will move too early anticipating and wanting to see the ball do what? Go in the hole. So you got to be patient, you got to work on the process, let the ball go in the hole. One of the best putters, Brad Faxon, said, when I start to putt bad, I try less. That's not easy to do, try less. We all tend to want to do what? Try more. Okay, so good luck with your putting, and I enjoyed doing this series with y'all. He's done it awesome. We're going to have a little, we're going to have a little putt competition. Can I have uh, Steve Gaspari, the great chairman of our elders, Marsh Moore, and United States Marine Corps, Aaron Berger, all come up for me. We're going to do a little demonstration competition. Here, let's put three balls up here. We're going to see who can hit the bulletin. All right, without, without rolling over stage, we're going to see who can land the bulletin or get closest to the bulletin. Aaron, being a Marine, has plenty of time to play golf. <laughs> who wants to go first? <laughs> closest to the bulletin wins. There we go. Here we go. Without falling off the stage. Wow. Wow. Hoorah. 
Let's see. Chairman of the Elders, Steve Gaspari. We're going to have to measure that one. All right. Marsh Moore, the man who is passionate about our orphanage in Mexico, one of the biggest hearts of any person you'll ever meet. Let's see if his golf game is as big as his heart. Don't let me distract you here, Marsh. Oh! I don't know. Who won? Steve may have got closest, but Aaron had a better line. We're talking this morning about you can have a lousy start, but a great finish. I mean, no, you can have a lousy start to a hole, but with putting, you can have a great finish. You can have a lousy start to a round, but you can have a great finish to the round. You can have a lousy start to the tournament, and you can have a great finish. We've seen Tiger Woods do that over and over throughout the years, making 20 to 30 to impossible foot putts over and over and over. So you can have a lousy start, but a great finish. One of the foundations of the message today is, did you know that you can change your past? You can change your past. It's not through a time machine. It's not through the DeLorean. But you can actually change your past. Some of you are just now getting that. Some of you will laugh later tonight. Oh, You can change your past. How? By make the right decisions today. Because guess what? Today is tomorrow's past. And you can change your past by making the right decisions today. And that's how God enables you to have a great finish, even though many of us have absolutely lousy and terrible starts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, Don't you realize that in a race everybody runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm just not shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching it to others, I myself might be disqualified. Paul's talking about finishing strong, training, finishing, making the right decisions consistently over and over so that we can finish the race without being disqualified, finish to win, run to win, and finish strong. Now, how many of you like me who grew up in Sunday school heard a lot of incredible Bible stories growing up? We all heard about Jonah getting swallowed by the whale. We've heard about Noah in the ark. We've heard about Moses parting the Red Sea, David fighting the giant. But how many of you in Sunday school ever learned about a character in the Old Testament, a king named Manasseh? See, Manasseh wasn't the popular Sunday school story that we told our children. Why? Because Manasseh is a modern-day Saddam Hussein. He was a modern-day Adolf Hitler. Manasseh was one of the most wicked, evil, terrible, horrible kings in all of the Bible. If you take everything Manasseh did and take everything that Adolf Hitler did, he made Adolf Hitler look like Walt Disney. I mean, this dude was bad. He was evil. He was corrupt. He was wicked to the core. And yet Manasseh had an incredible finish in his life. How is that possible? Let's look at his story this morning. Second Kings, let's start in verse, uh, chapter 21 in verse 1. 
Second Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. How many know that is a long time for anyone? I mean, can you imagine a president getting elected in 1956 and still being president today? I mean, imagine if he was a wicked, God-hating, Christian-hating person that was bent on destroying our nation, and he had 55 years to do it. I mean, no, America would look a lot different today after 55 years. His mother was, whatever her name is, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. Let's just look now at a synopsis of the stuff he did according to the Bible. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Now, who is Hezekiah? Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. Hezekiah was a man of God. He was close to God. He worshiped God. He honored God. He revered God. He was an incredible leader, an incredible king. And this incredible man of God, this incredible king, had this wicked, horrible, evil son. See, there's a lot of parents today who are beating themselves up over the choices their children have made. And if you've had children that have made terrible choices and you're beating yourself up for it, you've got to understand that people... are responsible for their own actions. People make choices for themselves. I know people who have grown up in the most horrible families you can imagine and have grown up to be the most incredible people. And I know people who have grown up in the greatest families with the most loving parents who made choices to turn their back on everything they learned from their family and go a very evil, wicked way. It is possible. I know a parent in the Bible who was perfect, who who did everything right, who loved his children unconditionally, never did anything wrong, the most perfect parent you can imagine, and his children still wound up in sin and failed. And their names were Adam and Eve, and his name was God. So be encouraged, parents. Be encouraged that don't blame yourself for everything because people make their own decisions. Moving on. He constructed altars for Baal, and he set up an Asheroth pole, just as King Ahab of Israel done. Here we go. God is, is, is relating Manasseh to Ahab. God said Ahab was the most wicked king up until that point. Ahab was the absolute worst. And now Manasseh here is rivaling Ahab, and it says he's setting up an Asheroth pole. What is an Asheroth pole? An Asherah pole was, was, was a statue to a, to a female deity, a, a female goddess, and it was a goddess of sex where they worshiped sex with temple prostitutes and everything else, and we have him setting this up right in God's home, right in the land, right in the temple. It says, he also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshiped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. I mean, that's sick. He built these altars for all the powers of the heaven in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. You see, back during this time period, there was worship to a false god named Molech. And part of the worship of this god named Molech is they would build a fire and they would get carried into such a frenzy that they would actually throw their children, infants, into the fire, sacrificing them to a false god. It says he practiced sorcery and divination. He consulted with mediums and psychics. He actually put witches and warlocks on his cabinet in the kingdom. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Manasseh even made a carved image of Asheroth and set it up in the temple. 
The very place where the Lord had told David and his son Solomon, my name will be honored forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, the city I have chosen from among all the tribes of Israel. If the Israelites will be careful to obey my commands, all the laws my servant Moses gave them, I will not send them into exile from this land I have given their ancestors. And Asheroth, right in the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies, But the people refused to listen, and Manasseh led them to do even more evil than the pagan nations that the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. Drop down a couple verses. It says, Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. He's slaughtering his own people so much that the entire city is filled with innocent blood from his own people. He's sacrificing his children in false god worship. He's setting up false idols and false gods right in the middle of the temple, in the holy of holies, in the holiest place of all. This guy was pure wicked, pure evil. He was messed up. Then the Lord said through his servants, the prophets, King Manasseh of Judah has done many detestable things. He is even more wicked than the Amorites who lived in this land before Israel. He caused the people of Judah to sin with his idols. So this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. I will judge Jerusalem by the same standard I used for Samaria and the same measure I used for the family of Ahab. I will wipe away the people of Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down. Then I will reject even the remnant of my own people who are left and I will hand them over as plunder for their enemies for they have done great evil in my sight and have angered me ever since their ancestors came out of Egypt. I mean, God is not happy. I mean, God is ticked when you read this. I mean, he is going to wipe out Manasseh, and rightfully so. This guy is wicked. This guy is evil. This guy is a sinner. This guy is, I mean, how many will agree with me? This guy's a mess. I mean, this guy is just messed up. Then you drop down to the end of the passage. He says, then the rest of the events in Manasseh's reign and everything he did, including the sins he committed, were recorded In the book of the history of the kings of Judah, that's the book of Chronicles, when Manasseh died, he was buried in the palace garden, the garden of Uzzah, then his son Ammon became the next king. Wait a second. That doesn't sound bad. He he was buried in the palace garden? That sounds, that's like, it's like a businessman in Florida dying. I mean, that sounds kind of peaceful to me. That doesn't sound like God destroying him, God slaughtering him, God wiping him off on the face of the earth. That sounds like a pretty peaceful death. Died in the palace garden, the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon became the next king. Well, you got to get into the rest of the story. And thankfully, we have another account of the story in 2 Chronicles 33 so we can begin to discover what in the world is going on here. I thought God's going to wipe this guy out. I thought God's going to destroy this guy. And all of a sudden, we find him dying peacefully in the garden. Well, look at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all his warnings. I love God. God will give you warnings. God, not just one warning. You've got to run about 10 lights before God finally, you know, allows you to wreck your car. I mean, God will give you warnings. God will, I mean, God loves you that much. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Syrian armies and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains, and they led him away to Babylon. That's it. That's the end of the story right there. Going to rot away in a dungeon in Babylon, taken prisoner. 
I mean, you know, back then they used to abuse and torture and do all sorts of things to the captive kings to make a show out of them, to make a mockery of them. They put a, a, a chain in his nose. They put a ring in his nose and pulled it by chain. The pain of that drug him across the desert from Jerusalem to Babylon, threw him in a dungeon. That is right. That's what he deserves. That's what he gets. That's what, that's where it should end, right? But not quite. That's not quite the end of the story. Now remember, this guy is evil. This guy is messed up. This guy is as wicked as you can get. But God in his mercy allows a different ending to the story. And I feel like somebody in here needs to hear it this morning. Somebody in the room today needs to hear that there can be a different ending to the story. You don't have to have an ending of destruction. You don't have to have an ending of your entire life falling apart because of sin and because of brokenness and because of evil. God allows a different ending. It's not how you start. You can have a lousy start, but a great finish. Keep reading with me. But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. The Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. That's the end of the story. Manasseh humbled himself. Manasseh truly and genuinely repented before God and it moved God. It brought mercy on his life. God restored him, brought him back to the palace, brought him back to the kingdom where he was allowed to die in peace after being one of the most wicked, evil horrible people in the history of the world, yet out of true repentance, God heard them. And the first thing I want to say today is that genuine repentance opens the floodgate of God's mercy on your life. Genuine repentance opens the floodgates of God's mercy. And true repentance is a remorseful attitude. It's an attitude that says, listen, if I had a chance, I would do it differently. If I could go back and make different choices, if I could go back, I would do it all differently. I will do anything. I will, it does, if it costs me everything I have, I'll give it all up if I could just change my life. The Puritan author Thomas Watson said, repentance is a vomiting of the soul. And I know that's graphic, but that's one of the greatest descriptions. It's a vomiting. It's not this sorry attitude where you're just sorry because you want to relieve the pressure because you got caught. It's a true remorse. It's a true, if I could do it differently, it doesn't matter what it costs. I'll do whatever it takes. And it's not based on emotions. I mean, I think back in our, 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 you know, my ministry alone, praying with people at the altar. I remember, you know, I remember one lady in particular, she, she didn't have a napkin. She had a beach towel. I mean, she can't, I mean, she was slobbering and snot and crying. I've never seen more water come out of a woman in all of my life. I mean, she's bawling, she's crying, she's repenting of everything in her life, whining. I mean, it looked, that beach towel looked like it had gone through a tsunami by the time she was done with it. And, I, and I'm thinking, if there is ever a pure demonstration of true repentance, it is in this woman. And yet we never saw her again. She didn't even make it back to the next week. She went right back to her lifestyle. I mean, you saw every emotion under the sun that you would think was repentance and boom, right back to her lifestyle. 
And then I remember one time having a guy, I mean, he looked like a Wall Street broker, three-piece suit, came down, cold as an ice cube. You know, I asked him, what would you like? He's like, I just need to repent. I mean, this guy is just cold, unemotional, and I'm thinking, this guy is not, this guy is not repenting. This guy, this is not repentance. And he just, he just prayed a prayer. He said, God, I'm sorry. I'll change my life. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. And yet that guy came back week after week after week, changed his life, changed his habits, changed his path. See, you can't base true repentance on emotions. See, there's different types of this, uh, what we call fake repentance. And the, there's the sorry repentance. I'm sorry that I got caught. And the only reason we're repenting is because we want to relieve the pressure off ourselves. Then there's what we call prison repentance. Prison repentance is when you find Jesus in jail. I mean, everyone that goes to prison finds Jesus and they change their life. But as soon as they get out, and listen, there are people who genuinely change their life in prison. So, so believe me, I, I know there are people who genuinely get to prison, genuinely change their life. But there's a lot of prison repentance going around where everyone that goes to prison, they find Jesus real quick. Then there's what I call Super Bowl repentance. This is my favorite kind. I mean, you've seen, I remember last year in the playoffs, I I believe it was the Jets, but it was some team. It was two seconds left on the clock. It was 17-17. All of a sudden, this skinny little guy comes running out on the field with a clean uniform, ready to kick a field goal, and he's either going to be the absolute villain or the absolute hero. I mean, if he misses this field goal, his his wife does not want him coming home that night. I mean, this guy is just, I mean, he's either going to save the day or destroy it. And he's running out. And you got to remember, these guys have been on the field. They're muddy. They're bloody. They're dirty. They've been fighting. They've been cussing. They've been living like complete reprobates all week long. And now it's 17-17, two seconds on the clock. And all of a sudden, there's a worship service going on on the side of the field. I mean, these guys are holding hands. Their lips are moving. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I'm sorry about all the women I had in my hotel room last night. I'm going to go to church on Sunday with Mama Jesus. If you just let him kick this gold, Jesus, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to turn it all over to you. Super Bowl repentance. But genuine repentance produces change. That's the key. Genuine repentance produces change. Second Chronicles chapter 33. Look at verse 14. We see the result of true repentance in Manasseh's life. After this, Manasseh rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David. From the west of Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley to the Fish Gate. And continuing around the hill of Ophel, he built the wall very high. And he stationed his military officers in all of the fortified towns of Judah. Manasseh also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple. He tore down all the altars he had built on the hill where the temple stood and all the altars that were in Jerusalem, and he dumped them outside the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord, and he sacrificed peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings on it. He also encouraged the people of Judah to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Repentance produces change. True change, your actions change, your lifestyle change. You begin to get rid of things in your life, idols that you set up in your life, issues, you, you see it begin to change. And God begins to erase the past. God begins to restore your past. God begins to completely forgive. It's activated through true repentance. And the second thing I want to talk about this morning is that my past life does not exclude me from present service. My past life does not exclude me from present service because there's a lot of people sitting in the room today 
thinking if they only knew the dark secrets I have in the closet of my soul, if they only knew how bad I was or how bad I am or how messed up I am or the things I've done, there is no way. Some of you are here in church today trying to make atonement. You're not here to worship God. You're here trying to pay for your past. You think if you can come to church enough, you can make atonement for everything you've done. And you're actually here today not to worship God, but to try to pay off a past. You're here to make atonement for yourself, thinking if I can change and become a good person, I can find forgiveness, but it doesn't happen that way. It happens through grace. It happens through mercy. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul, Paul begins to write, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That just about covers everybody in the room. I don't think any of us can escape that. You know, and Paul really, he's writing all that in a sense to brag about it. He's kind of bragging on it all in a weird way because watch this. Look at what he goes on to say. He lists all of that and says, listen, none of us are good enough. None of us are perfect. All of us got problems. All of us got issues. All of us have been in sin. And then he goes on to write, some of you were once like that. How many of you can raise your hand? Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God of our God. He's saying, listen, we all have a past. We are all messed up. We have all made mistakes, but we were cleansed. We were made holy. We were made right with God, not because of our works, not because of our effort, not because we could pay for it ourselves, but because we called on the name of the Lord. We repented. We humbled ourselves. We, 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 we got down and said, God, you've got to do it. I can't, I can't pay for this. I can't do it. I, you have got to do it. It was because of what Jesus did in their life. They all got a second chance. That entire list of people got a second chance because of what Jesus did, because of repentance, because of the vomiting of the soul. They got a second chance. I wonder if Manasseh ever woke up in the middle of the night horrified by the memories of the things he did. I mean, if he was human, he must have. I mean, that's the power of guilt. See, all of us, you know, there are times we wake up remembering the things we did, the people we hurt, the actions, just horrified. I don't know if you've ever seen the way they train a circus elephant, but it's probably one of the greatest uh, descriptions of guilt. They take, they take a circus elephant when they're born, and they, they, they chain him to a pole, and this little elephant, like any toddler, fights and fights and fights to get away, but he can't break the chain. The chain is too strong. And he fights and he fights and he fights and he just can't get away from the pole. As hard as he fights, as hard as he struggles, he can't get away. And he grows up being trained like this. So by the time he's this massive two-ton powerful beast, they tie him to a little rope stake in the ground. He could snap the rope like a thread, but he remembers. He used to fight. He used to struggle. And he couldn't break free. It's useless. Why should I try? Why should I, why should I try to get away? I'm never going to get away. I'm never going to break free. I can't do it. And that's the power of guilt keeping you in bondage. That's the power of guilt keeping you in a lifestyle. I can't break free. I've tried. I've struggled. I've fought. I can't do it. And that's what Satan does. 
But the reality is if God would allow Manasseh to have a great finish after one of the most horrible starts in the history of the world, God could do it for anybody. When Jesus hung on the cross and Jesus shouted, it is finished. That word finished in the Greek is the word teleo, which means paid in full. When he said it is finished, he said it is paid in full. Your sin, what you committed, your failure, your mistakes is paid in full. You don't have to show up to church to pay for it. You can show up to church to worship God because your life, your past, your history is paid in full. I mean, just imagine if I, you know, if I went down to the bank and I asked the bank, I went to Tim's bank and I said, how much does Tim owe on his house? The house he's going to own in the future. And they give me a number. I said, well, how much does Tim owe on his car? And they give me a number. And I say, okay, I'm going to write a check. I want to make a payment for it. You want to make a payment? No, I want to pay it off. You want to pay late? No, no, I want to pay the entire thing off. And then a few weeks later, Tim gets this packet of paper in the mail. There's all these papers of the title and the deed. And right on top with a big giant stamp, it says paid in full. I mean, that's a good feeling to get that document in the mail. Paid in full. He would be an idiot to go down and argue with the bank. I, I just don't feel like it's paid for. I mean, I, I, there's got to be something I can do. I mean, you know, can I, can I make a donation? I mean, what can I do? I just don't feel like it's paid in full. But how many of us continually argue with God? I don't feel like I'm forgiven. I, I, I just don't feel like it. I, I, you know, you don't understand, God. I, I don't feel like it. And we argue with God. And Jesus said, paid in full. It's done. It's paid for. It's gone. It's erased. Paid in full. Hebrews ten seventeen says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless deeds. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless See, the problem is the revelation says Satan is the, the accuser of the brethren. In the sad reality, he's got a lot of Christian helpers. Accusing, accusing, accusing. You're not good enough. You, 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 God will never accept you. You're too bad. You're too messed up. You've made mistakes. You can't be forgiven. Look at your past. Look at your history. You'll never be used. Just accusation after accusation, and yet Hebrews says, I will never again remember your sins. God can't remember it, so why are you? If God can completely forget as far as the east is from the west, and for those of you that are geogra geography majors, you'll realize, I mean, you can go as far east as you want. You, you know, it, it, it just keeps going round and round. I want to close with the two most encouraging words in the entire Bible. The two most encouraging words. In Mark chapter 16, Mary and the other women were at the tomb. And Jesus had been risen from the dead. And this is what the angel told the women. He said, now go and tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter, the two most encouraging words in the Bible. What did that mean? Why did Jesus single out Peter? Why didn't he just say, go tell my disciples? But he actually took the time to single out Peter. Go tell my disciples and Peter. 
Because Peter wasn't a disciple anymore. Read it. Peter quit. Peter walked away. Peter was back doing the family's business. He was back on a boat fishing. He quit because he failed. He quit because he betrayed Christ. He quit because he didn't think God could ever use him again. I'm a failure. I've made mistakes. He'll never accept me. He'll never take me back. I'm no longer a disciple. I've lost my rights. I forfeited my life. And yet, God in his mercy and his love said, go tell my disciples and Peter. Tell Peter he's still a disciple. Tell Peter I still love him. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster clucking. I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it. All right. Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait. Yeah. The angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? 
Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. That video gets me every time. You know, there's an old hymn that says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Some of you need to hear those words this morning, Ann Peter. Some of you need to know that God's grace can go to the darkest corners of your heart, your mind, your soul. He can go into that closet with the cobwebs and those secrets. And whatever it is, God's grace can go to the depths of who you are. If he can do it for Manessa, if he can do it for Peter, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Some of you need to experience the grace of God this morning. Some of you need to experience his love, his mercy. Well, you begin that step by putting him first. You take that step by saying, yes, I put you first. I repent. I surrender. I repent. I come humbly before you. I can't do it. I can't pay for it. I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough. I'm not good enough to stand up here. None of us are good enough. He's the one that did it on the cross for us. He's the one that made it possible for us to be righteous. Not our works, not our efforts. So some of you this morning need to accept his love. You need to accept his mercy. You need to accept his forgiveness. You need to stop trying to pay for it on your own because you'll never pay for it. You'll never get it. You just need to let him pay for it for you. His mercy, his grace, his love. So if you need to make a decision today to put God first, to accept his grace in your life, with every eye closed, every head bowed, nobody looking around, if you'd like to pray with me, to put God first and accept His grace. I want you to raise your hand right now. Three. Thank you. 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 Put your hands down. The process is simple. To put God first, we first have to repent. We come to God and say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Forgive me. I tried, but I repent, I change, I, I surrender to you. The next part is confession. You just confess that he is Lord. God, you are Lord. You are Lord of my life. I give you life. I put you first in my life. I make you number one. You are everything. You are number one in my life. I put you first. And then the last part is just accept him as your savior. Thank you, God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for 
your grace. Thank you that you can save somebody like me. Thank you that you can forgive somebody like me. Thank you that you can use somebody like me. So you repent, you confess that he's Lord, and then you accept his grace, accept him as Savior, accept his mercy in your life, and that's it. And so just right now, I want you to just pray that prayer to yourself, whether you want to do it out loud or just to yourself. Just take a moment quickly and just pray that prayer right now.